Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast.
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, the only podcast where we talk about Richard Petty and Delma Cowart in equal tones of reverence. As they deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, with me is my co-host, Steve Wade, the master of all he surveys. I don't know about the master of all I survey, but uh, (laughs) thank you, Rick. (laughs) Steve, we have an awesome episode this week, and first things first, I want to play just a little clip, and then I want to get your impressions of that clip. Here he comes, Earnhardt. It's the Dale and Dale show. It's become off of turn four. You know who I'm pulling for. It's Dale Jarrett. Bring her to the inside, Dale. Don't let him get down there. He's He's going to make it. Dale Jarrett's going to win the Daytona 500. Steve, in my opinion, that is the greatest call that was ever made in NASCAR broadcasting history. You got to admit, it's unique. I mean, a father <laughs> calling a race that his son is winning for the first time. It's got to be, uh, well, there's no words for it. It's really special. And you can hear from Ned's voice that it was really a special moment for him and for his family. Absolutely. Uh, they also showed a clip of uh, Ned's wife, Martha, watching the Oh, that was race. the best part. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. She's yeah. just tearing up watching her son win the race. And yeah, you could hear it in Ned's voice. I never heard Ned on the air get that excited before. Also on tap for this episode, we're going to be going back to the September 15th, 1994 issue of Winston Cup Scene and a race that was won by Terry Labonte. But before the race, there was just a little bit of controversy involving Jeff Burton. Which at the time seemed very, very unusual because he was with the quality team, the Stavola brothers, and he was a rookie. And he made big headlines at Richmond before the race ever started. For all the wrong reasons. Exactly. Of course, you went into broadcasting, Mm -hmm. and there are two moments in particular, at least to me, that stand out from your career. Number one was the fact that you got to interview Ronald Reagan Mm -hmm. live on the air during the 1984 Firecracker 400. How nervous were you going into that? Well, I think the Dale Carnegie course helped me to uh, prepare for that, and and so I wasn't really nervous. And, And Ronald Reagan was the type of a guy, if you were nervous, He'd put you at ease just real quick. Almost when he walked in the door, he I'd never met him. He had been schooled on me before he got there. He, he made me feel at ease. That, that, that really was never a, a big problem for me. Uh, and, and I'm proud that, that it worked out that way, that I wouldn't be sitting there ooh and ah, and, and uh, I'm talking to the President of the United States. I just went on Slack feet with somebody else. And fortunately, I have those tapes. That was the day that Richard won his 200th race, right. 
with President Reagan there. He actually gave the command fire engines from Air Force One. Then he landed and came on into the racetrack and had his interview with you. Richard won the race in a pretty spectacular fashion over mm-hmm. Kelly Yarborough. How big a day was that for NASCAR? Oh, I think it was a tremendous day for NASCAR. There have been half a dozen or so things that have happened over the years, or over the 60 years, really, that NASCAR has been in existence. And I, I put that in the top five, certainly, of things that have happened to take the sport to another level. Uh, you know, having the president of the United States there, uh, first of all, to give the command from Air Force One and, and then to, to come on to the racetrack and go on the radio broadcast and and, uh, and to be there to uh, talk with Richard. They brought him up in the VIP suite after the race, and, and then he went down into the garage area and, and had lunch with the people in the garage. And it, it, it was a special, special day, no doubt. And, and it got attention for the sport that it had never gotten in places where it had never gotten attention before. I've said many times, and I'll say it here, that you, Bob Jenkins, and Benny Parsons on ESPN in the late 1980s, early 1990s, were the best broadcasting team in NASCAR history. What made you guys so good? We liked each other, for one thing, and we were all on the same page. We understood each other, and we understood our mission. And our mission was to try to take that race, what was happening on the racetrack, to the fans. Benny and I didn't know words uh, that people couldn't understand, so so we couldn't talk above their heads. And uh, we complimented each other in the broadcast booth. Benny was exceptionally good at at uh, predicting something going wrong with a race car and, and, and what it might be. I had the knack of being able to keep up with the race. And we didn't have the scoring back in those days that we have today that you could look down at the monitor <laughs> yeah. and, and, and see who's where and, and how many seconds behind and all this kind of thing. I mean, we didn't have that. And, but I had a God-given talent, I guess, or something that I could, I could keep up with the race and people making pit stops and where it put them and all that kind of thing. And, and Bob was just such a great leader. He let us do our thing. He didn't, he didn't try to, to do our jobs, and we certainly didn't try to do his job. And so we just we just jailed. We've we had a good time at it and uh, and tried to accomplish the mission that we set out to accomplish. Now, I think the thing that made you guys work was the fact that sitting and listening to a broadcast that you guys did, it was like sitting in a room with you. We, you know, you were having a conversation with almost with the race fans. And, and, that, and that's a good point. And I appreciate you, you bringing that up because that, that was our style. And that's just the way that, that we thought it needed to be done to, uh, to keep people's attention and make them want to watch the race. Here I've told you that you were part of the greatest team in, in NASCAR motorsports broadcasting history. And now I'm going to give you an, an individual honor, in my opinion, the call that you made at the end of the 1993 Daytona 500, that was the equivalent of Al Michaels' Do You Believe in Miracles call at the end of the Miracle on Ice game in the 1980 Olympics. Number one, it was a cool finish. But number two, that was your son <laughs> on the racetrack. Take me through that, those last couple of laps. Well, that, that was such a special moment. We didn't really realize at the time how special it would become. And as we've traveled around over the country, I'll say this before we get into the how it really happened. Uh, that is 
that particular broadcast is mentioned more than all other things put together. <laughs> and, and we appreciate that because yeah. it, it, it is so special to our family. I'll take you back to, to when we would go to Daytona each year. I worked with CBS from the time they started broadcasting in 1979 until they lost the broadcast rights in 2000. And uh, each year they would call me in and uh, and said, what, who can we look to to be a threat here and and you know just bring them up to date on what what they needed to be looking out for this was the producer bob stinner and uh so i told him in that meeting i said well this might sound self-serving but i said you can watch out for dale jarrett this year he said really i said yep i said he's he's going to be tough in this race and uh of course as the week played out he sat on the outside pole kyle petty won the pole and uh and he you know, he, he ran good all the time. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, when it came down near the end of that race, Ken Squire was the was the anchor person. The late Neil Bonnet was the other analyst in the booth along with myself. And, you know, the producer has the ability to push a button and speak to each individually. Or he can push a button and speak to all of them at the same time. Right. I say that to... To, to let folks have an understanding of, of how it, this played out. So DJ had gotten, was riding along in third place after they made their last pit stop. And Jeff Gordon was running second, his first Daytona 500, and Dale Earnhardt was leading the race. And uh, so DJ kept sizing Gordon up where he's going to make his pass. And I'd made a few comments about where I thought he'd make the pass uh, coming off of turn four because that appeared to be Gordon's weakness. And sure enough, with about three laps to go, that's where he made his pass on Jeff Gordon, passed him on the outside. Jeff immediately fell in behind him because he wanted to protect it. All he's trying to do is get a top five out of out of his first Daytona right. 500. And uh, and he figured, he figured if he followed Dale Earnhardt that he'd do that. And he was doing a great job of that. And then uh, he got up on Earnhardt, and Earnhardt's car was beginning to get loose. And Dale knew how to make it get looser. And I don't think Gordon knew at that time how to do it. I mean, yeah. he's a master at it now, but but I don't think at that time that he knew how to get up there and make Earnhardt's car looser. And uh, and so I made comment about that, that needed to to get up there and especially going into turn three, coming around to get the white flag. He got up beside of him as they crossed the start-finish line, getting the white flag, and then made the pass going into turn one for the lead. And Bob Stinner came on my headset and said, okay, Ned, call your son home and be a daddy. See, I didn't know that he had told the other announcers to lay off. We're going to let Ned call this last lap. Uh, wow. And so I just went from being a supposedly professional announcer to being a dad. <laughs> and uh, and it was interesting that Dale, when you see that tape of the race, everything that I was saying to him, he was doing. <laughs> I said, take her to the inside, Dale. Don't let him get down to the inside. He'd just pull it right down to the inside. He instinctively knew how to do that. And I have people that argue with me today. Oh, you had a two-way radio with him. Yeah, I know. No, I didn't have a two-way radio with me. It just, uh, we both knew what needed to happen and, and he did it. And uh, and then they had that camera positioned on Martha. She was in a van behind <laughs> Poor Pitt Martha. Road. Yeah. And, uh, and they kept going back and forth to her. I thought she's going to have a heart attack. And see, she wanted to be in a position, she wanted me to park that van where she could have gone up in the CBS VIP suite where she could see that whole racetrack and have food and drink and everything, you know, comfort. Nope. She wanted me to park that van where she could see that race car, that number 18 is driving then, come by one each lap around. She'd listen to it on MRN radio. And uh, so they 
the cameraman, instead of getting in front of her to let her know that what they were doing, he was at, at the side view mirror. And that's where those shots that you see were yeah. coming from, was from the side view mirror. And she didn't even know they were there. Really? She had no idea that there was a camera. <laughs> oh, I bet there was heck to pay oh, after man. that. <laughs> CBS had a, uh, uh, they always had a party on Sunday night, a celebration type of a party. And they uh, showed that film and boy, she jumped straight up and she said, they're invading my privacy. <laughs> but after she saw it, it really played out and she, she understood then. But, uh, but that was a special, special moment. Not, and I'll inject this too. I, yeah. I know a lot of people have heard about it. Uh, I wanted to get to Dale Earnhardt, but, you know, through all the celebration and everything after that race, I had to work the race until the broadcast went off the air, and then I went down to Victory Lane. And so I didn't see Earnhardt until the next week at Rockingham. And uh, he was going to the driver's meeting on Sunday morning, and uh, he was on the outside of the fence walking down through there, and I was on the inside, and I ran over there, and I said, Dale, I need to talk to you a second. He said, congratulations, you guys, on winning that race last week. I said, that's what I want to talk to you about. I said, I did you wrong. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I was on national television pulling for my son, and I said, that's not very professional. That's not the way that it ought to be done. And uh, he looked me straight in the eyes and punched through the fence into my stomach. He said, don't you ever forget, I'm a daddy too. The old softy. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, DJ followed you into the broadcast booth. Mm -hmm. And at Charlotte in 2007, you were able to share the booth with him Mm -hmm. during a nationwide race. Mm -hmm. What did that mean to you to be able to do that? That was special also. That was very special. I appreciate ESPN putting it together and and the the, uh, encouragement by Jerry Punch to have them to do that. It wasn't anything that Dale and I instigated. Uh, but uh, and Kevin Clark, who's uh, their chief spotter, he was one that really worked hard at trying to to make that happen as well. And uh, it it was very neat to to be able to do that. It didn't uh, have the same meaning as the 1993 Daytona 500, but I'll tell you, it ranks very high as far as anything that I did in in broadcasting, and even though I just stayed for, they told me to stay as long as I wanted to, and I stayed uh, past the halfway point and and left, but that was a special moment. Last question. How would you like to be remembered by race fans as a race car driver or a broadcaster, or does it matter just as long as you're remembered? It doesn't really matter. I got more satisfaction out of my broadcasting career than I did driving the race cars. First of all, it helped me to to make a transition from race driving to whatever I was going to do, although it was a long time before I started making a living from broadcasting. Uh, but I did start almost immediately doing some radio broadcast and, and getting experience but it took another 15 years before I would start making a living from it. But the challenge that was there, I learned, was a bigger challenge than driving the race car. And and I think that came from the fact that I grew up on a farm and working at a sawmill and, and never even had it in wild dreams <laughs> that I would ever work for MRN Radio or CBS or ESPN or TNN and, and these companies that I was fortunate enough to, to work for. And to be able to get in on the ground, I was almost on the ground of, of racing. Uh, but it had been going on for about uh, uh, five or six years before I uh, got started in it. And uh, But on the broadcasting side of it, I was able to see it from its infancy. Yeah. 
and and to to be able to hang on long enough and to see a lot of the technology that came along uh, to help improve the broadcast of the events and and I felt that I was doing something for the fans uh, more for the fans than I could do behind the wheel of a race car and so I think that that's the way that I would like to be remembered but I I would want fans to to remember me as as a person who who loved the sport uh, worked hard to try to grant, gain respect in it and uh, just gaining respect with my fellow man. Awesome. Ned, I appreciate your time. Sure thing. Steve, as always, it is a blast going back through the scene vault and the archives of all the newspapers. And, you know, we consider Ned Jarrett Gentleman Ned. Exactly. That's an appropriate nickname. But... I found a story in the November 20th, 1980 issue of what was then Grand National Scene in which the headline says, Police Hassled Ned Jarrett at AIR, Atlanta International Raceway. You're kidding me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how in the world are you going to get into it with Ned Jarrett? Beats me, but I guess you can tell a story about how it happened. Here's the details in a nutshell. From what this story said, and it was written by Gene Granger, Ned at the time was a representative of Anheuser-Busch. And so he brought beer to the racetrack and he had apparently left a stash of beer in the guard shack there in Atlanta. Evidently, when he went to get that beer, he went in the wrong gate and one of the super trooper security guards called him on it. And Ned said, I'm, you know, just trying to get to where I need to go and it's just right here and I'll, you know, be right here and here's my credential and all this. And Evidently, they kind of got into it, and Ned, from what the story said, said to himself, well, I'll be an SOB. You're kidding. The local sheriff was evidently there and thought that Ned had called him. Him the SOB, huh? Oh, oh, the plot thickens. (laughs) So long story short, Ned Jarrett winds up in the back of a deputy's car. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there are some guys in racing I can imagine being there, but not Ned. There are some people in racing that deserve to be there, that (laughs) might need to be there. (laughs) But Ned Jarrett, Ned Jarrett, gentleman Ned, gets into it with a security guard and winds up in the back of a sheriff's car. I can't imagine that. That is just absolutely unreal. But, But, you know, give Ned credit. He stood his ground. He did. And also... L.G. DeWitt, who was a longtime car owner in the sport, owned the car that Benny Parsons won the championship with and was at the time the president of Atlanta Raceway. He evidently got told about the incident and said, well, I know Ned, and if Ned goes to jail, I'm going to jail too. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't really surprise me. I mean, L.G. was a soft-spoken man uh, and a very good businessman. And he was friends with a lot of people in the sport at every level. And to be that loyal to Ned, well, that says something about Ned as far as I'm concerned, as well as LG. end result was that it got diffused, and I I think LG kind of stepped in and said, hey, he's okay, you're going down the wrong road with Ned. And so Ned summed it up perfectly. He said, I guess I'm on parole. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, suffice it to say, he served his parole well. Who would have ever guessed that a mean and dastardly creature such as Ned Jarrett, who had just a short time before been in the back of a Atlanta area deputy's car, would be talking to the president of the United States. Now, Steve, you were there that day. Tell me about what it meant to the sport to have President Reagan there, regardless of what happened at the end of the race. It was huge because it granted the sport and NASCAR tremendous national coverage. Uh, I can remember that for the first time, there were actually representatives of uh, national news outlets at Daytona. The Washington Post, New York Times, those types of people uh, showed up to see what went on in the race and uh, obviously to see how President Reagan uh, was treated at the race and what the response would be. And it was just absolutely tremendous all the way around. Do you remember the interview that Ned did with President Reagan? Yeah, parts of it. Uh, first of all, uh, President Reagan had done his homework, and he said to Ned, Ned, I understand you have two sons who are now getting into racing. Of course, he's talking about Glendale. And, uh, yes, sir, Mr. President, the, uh, Ned answered him and said, I'm very proud of him. And then uh, Ned said back to President Reagan, I understand you were a sports announcer in your earlier days. Do you want to take us to the end of the race here? <laughs> <laughs> well, the blue car is going around the white car, and yeah. the white car is... <laughs> no, no, President Reagan. No, not me. The fact that President Reagan was there was one thing, and that was very special. And, of course, he had given the command to fire engines from Air Force One and all that kind of thing. But then, for the race to end up like it did with Richard Petty winning his 200th race in a heck of a finish with Kel Yarbrough, you know, that was just almost too much to ask for. Well, it was just like Hollywood. I mean, you couldn't have gotten a script for a finish like that from Hollywood. They would have thought it just too incredible. But it turned out they were side by side coming out of the fourth turn and heading down the dog leg to the finish line when the caution came out. And everybody thinks that's when the race ended. No, it was one more lap to go. The caution came out because Doug Heveron spun out in the first turn. And flipped. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, when Richard beat Kale to the caution, uh, there was still one more lap to go, but effectively the race was over. And what happened then is kind of unusual, too. Richard came around the track under caution, everybody cheering because they knew he'd won, and Kale peeled off. Pulled a Mark Martin. Yeah, yeah. he peeled <laughs> off and went down to the pitch. Harry Gant took second place because Kale did that. And I talked to Kale about that a little while afterwards, and he's that's my most embarrassing moment in racing ever. And I, he's I can't believe I did that. But he did. And he gave up second place to Harry Gant. And Richard, of course, won his 200th race in front of the president and was immediately taken uh, up the track and through the crowd up to the press box to speak to President Reagan. Now, Steve, we were talking before we started recording, and you said that you had a story about this race. I got to hear another Steve Wade story. <laughs> okay. True or not? <laughs> well, this one is definitely true. Uh, it starts the morning of the race. And uh, several of us media types were heading into the, the gate and go up to the press box. Well, there at the gate was a big black tent and tarp, black tarp, covered the stairway heading up to the press box. thought, what in the world is this? So we ran into that tent and there was the Secret Service. They made every one of us open up our briefcases 
and open up our computer bags. And back in those days, uh, there's all kinds of computers. Some were big, some were little, but everybody had to put it on the table and let the Secret Service look at it. Now, one guy, I won't say his name. Oh, you got to name names. No, Come no. on, man. <laughs> <laughs> one guy started grousing about the whole thing, about complaining. He went in and said, the government this and the government that, and why are we having to go through this, and why are we having to go through that? He was saying this while he was standing in line. Two Secret Service men came up and took him out of that line and into a corner of the tent. Hello. Yes. (laughs) I don't know what all they did to him, but I can tell you, it took 30 more minutes before he ever showed up at the press box. And turns out he said they did everything to him. They made him drop his uh, drop out everything in his drop pocket. his what? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> drop out his pockets, <laughs> and of course look through his uh, briefcase and look through his computer just with flashlights and everything. He was there for thirty forty minutes before he was allowed to get to the press box. Now in the press box, there were several Secret Service agents, and when you left the press box for any reason. You had to tell one of them where you were going and why you were going. So I, you know, sometime during the race, I had to use the men's room. So I went up and said uh, to the Secret Service man, sir, I have to use the men's room. Do you really want to know why? (laughs) (laughs) He shook his head. No, he was a nice guy. So that's what you had to do, though. You could not leave the press box without telling a Secret Service man what you were doing. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the the searching of the bags because at that time that was certainly out of the ordinary. Never, never, never. Now now is a routine. Yeah, that's that's just standard. Obviously, at the airport, I covered the NCAA Final Four for NCAA.com several years ago, and you know our bags were searched before we went into the the main media room. It certainly was a different time. Yes, it was. And uh, uh, to give you an idea of uh, the mood that was in the press box, uh, it wasn't somber. I mean, we accepted the fact that a president comes with his own security and there's nothing you can do about it. Just take it. Well, we were sort of joking about it as the race went on. And it turned out that at one point of the race, Ken Reagan, who's David Reagan's father, his car started smoking and Tom Higgins... My buddy. Oh, Pappy. What did you do? (laughs) He got real mischievous. He he tapped me on the shoulder and said, watch this. And he yelled out real loud, oh, my God, Reagan's blown. (laughs) And I said, what did you say? (laughs) In that press box, I ducked under my desk. Oh, my Lord. I said, I knew we were going to jail. But surprisingly, nothing happened, so he got away with it. But can you imagine yelling, Reagan's blown? (laughs) With the president in the, <laughs> in the next stall? I mean, that's not crazy. Oh, wow. Now, let me ask you this. Could you see him? Where was he actually during the race? Yeah, he was in the radio booth right next to the media booth. Okay, so you actually could we see. We could see okay. through yeah. the glass, yeah. see him talking to Ned and hear the words because they were, of course, piping the radio broadcast into us. So uh, it was, wasn't hard at all to watch him, watch him and Ned, you know, go back and forth. I would assume that you had to work yeah, after well, the race and didn't get to go to the big legendary picnic. Yeah, it might be, be surprising to you, but I did have to work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, most, of the, well, nearly all of us in the press box were typing away when the uh, big, you know, lunch was going on. Uh, we only saw pictures of it, at least I did. But uh, 
it was uh, there was a shot of President Reagan sitting down, and I think Bobby Allison and Richard Petty were on either side of him, and they were eating Kentucky Fried Chicken at that picnic there. Nothing more NASCAR at that time than I, Kentucky absolutely. Fried Chicken. <laughs> chicken Bone Alley. That was 1984. Nine years later, Ned is in the broadcast booth, and the Daytona 500 comes down to Del Jarrett and Del Earnhardt. Now imagine being in Ned Jarrett's shoes. I can't really figure that out. I mean, I don't know how I would respond to that. But as we have said earlier, Ned was obviously very, very excited. And not only was he calling the race, he was giving instructions to Dale <laughs> yes, over the air. Yeah. Yeah, so, move down, Dale. Don't let him get down there. Don't let him get beneath you and everything of that nature. You know, just went as one after the other. And uh, you could tell not only he was excited, he won, obviously wanted his son to win. And at the same time, he was trying to be very professional. And uh, uh, he was. Uh, and he was as, as excited as he was. He still managed to be professional. And I can never, I'll never forget his, uh, his last words before the finish were, and Dale Jarrett's going to win the Daytona 500. <laughs> yeah, that was absolutely yeah. an awesome, astounding call. Steve, in sports broadcasting history, I would consider Al Michaels' call, Do You Believe in Miracles? Yes. That is absolutely number one. I would put Ned Jarrett's call of the 93 Daytona 500 far and away number one in NASCAR broadcasting absolutely. history. Absolutely. You can't take away anything from Barney Hall, his entire body of work. You can't take away anything from Ken Squire, but one single call in the moment, you can't top Ned Jarrett. No. And it was the way circumstances played out in that race with Dale Jarrett actually beating Dale Earnhardt who was trying to win his first Daytona 500, and then having Ned in the booth call that whole thing. That's, that, those, that series of circumstances helped create a situation where Ned could have easily gotten over-emotional and carried away, and I'll use the word unprofessional. He'd be like a father cheering for the son. Well, he was that to a point, but he never forgot what he was there for. And as excited as he was, I maintain that he made a good finishing call that I think, and I do agree with you, ranks as the best in NASCAR history. Can you imagine somebody today making a call and then going to the person the next week and apologizing? Because that's what Ned Jarrett did. He went to Dale Earnhardt the next week at Rockingham yeah. and apologized. And Dale's response was absolutely perfect. He said, Never forget, I'm a daddy too. That is perfect, absolutely perfect, and and uh, the right way to respond to Ned's apology. That was the right way to do it because Dale realized obviously that Dale Jarrett was Ned Jarrett's son, and Ned wanted him to win the Daytona 500. So why criticize or condemn the man for that? He accepted his apology, but he let him know that he approved. If you want to hear more about Del Earnhardt's side of the story in the 1993 Daytona 500, buy my book. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> Steve, they're racing this weekend in Richmond. And going through the archive, I kind of put it up to our followers on Twitter and asked them which they would rather hear about. Had basically two ideas in mind. The 1994 September night race won by Terry Labonte. But before the race, 
there was an incident with Jeff Burton's disqualification, or I had in mind to do the 1999 night race, which was Tony Stewart's first Winston Cup victory. Right. And that issue also covered Ernie Irvin's retirement. I was positive. I would have almost put money on it that the Tony Stewart race would have won. And while that one did get two or three votes, far and away, people wanted to hear about Jeff Burton. So have at it. Well, that was <laughs> I can understand the vote because that was a very unusual situation, not something that happens at a racetrack every week by any means. Jeff Burton at the time was a rookie. And he was driving for the Stavola brothers. And uh, they went through inspection at Richmond, and they found out, the NASCAR officials found out, they had drilled holes in the roll bar. Now, I didn't know, and no other media member knew what the heck the holes were for, but we found out later it was to alter the weight of the car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And by doing that, though, they did one serious thing wrong. They threatened the life of their driver by compromising the uh, solidity of those roll bars, something terrible could have happened. Well, when we found out about it, of course, we headed over to the Stavola Brothers area of the garage and tried to get as much information as we could. Well, Jeff Burton was there. Now, remember, he's like 27 years old. This is his first year in NASCAR. Nobody expects him to be able to act let's say, as maturely or professionally as the veteran drivers when it comes to the media. So we circled him, and he said first, he said, gentlemen, please wait a minute. I have to go do something. Then I'll come back and talk to you. Well, we'd heard that one before. We all rolled our eyes and said, well, this is the last time we're going to see that kid. Well, guess what? He came back. He came back and told his side of the story, which was that he had no idea which, what was going on but had to accept whatever NASCAR handed out because the team was caught. You know, no doubt about it. And so NASCAR came down, fined the team, and also disqualified it from the Richmond race. Dis what? Disqualified. They don't ever do that, do what? they? What? <laughs> I think I've heard of that before. Yeah. It's, Explain this disqualification. Well, disqualification means you don't race. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> And um, uh, that was something that pretty much stunned us as well. Well, come to find out uh, that it, it made sense because what we found out later, like I told you earlier, was that it compromised the solidity of the roll bars and put the life of the driver in danger. That is exactly why NASCAR told them, you're not going to race this car. You're not going to race it here tonight. Go home and you get a fine as well. Now, Jeff Burton acted very, very mature and professional through the whole thing. No tantrums, no get away from me type of attitude or anything. When he came back and answered every one of our questions, I knew that he was going to be a special driver. Not so much in terms of winning races, which he did do, but a lot with his maturity and his diplomatic attitude in the garage area. Jeff Burton was seemingly almost always the go-to guy to solve differences. The mayor of the garage area. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. As a matter of fact, at NASCAR Illustrated, uh, one year we made him man of the year. We voted him man of the year for his diplomatic and and. Uh, logical uh, responses to crises, and that's what he did. And so we saw that first evidence way back in Richmond on that day. Steve, in this story that Deb Williams wrote, 
Jeff is quoted as saying, that's not been done since I've been here. That was at least two years ago. And he basically infers that he would have never sat in a car like that. Yeah, that's basically what he told us at Richmond that day, that had he known, he would not have driven that car. But, you know, I don't know how to explain this except to say we hear stuff like that from drivers all the time. Absolutely. I'm just a driver. I don't know what's going on. He didn't. He really did not know and said very forcefully that he would never have gotten into the car had that been a situation. That strengthens, to me, not only his poise and maturity, it also strengthens the reason NASCAR disqualified the team. That's a denial that I believe, because so many times when a penalty comes down, the crew chief plays dumb, the driver plays dumb, the age-old that infraction was caused by race damage. You know, somebody bumped right. into it. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Own up to it. In this situation, I really do believe that Jeff did not know. No, he did. I'm convinced he did not know. And uh, he told us he did not know. We all believed him that he did not know. And again, I refer back to what you brought up earlier. He forcefully said he would have never gotten in the car had he known That drives it home. Another reason that I tend to believe his denial is the fact that later on, he became one of the number one leading safety advocates. Absolutely. And this was something that was a safety issue. Yeah, absolutely. And that added to his character. And that added to his popularity in the garage area because he was a level-headed, mature uh, driver who was not afraid to speak his mind but was also not afraid to make sure that everybody else got what they deserved in terms of a fair shake. In the June 28th, 2001 issue of Winston Cup saying there's a story that I wrote about another incident that was very similar. The very first Bush Series race that was held at Kentucky Speedway, Tim Salter, who was driving the number 61 car, I think it was Express Motorsports was the name of the team, was involved in a wreck. And when he came back to the garage, inspectors kind of noticed something funny, and there were holes drilled throughout the roll cage of his car. I talked to John Darby later, and he told me off the record that it was one of those cases where he saw what had been done, and he told me, Steve, that it just about made him sick. I think a part of the issue was considering what had happened in the year 2000 with Adam Petty, Kenny Irwin, Tony Roper, and certainly what had happened at Daytona in February with Dale Earnhardt, we were in the midst of this just monstrous safety debate, and we go to Kentucky, and there are holes drilled in the roll cage of that car. Now, I will say this in Crew Chief Dave Fuge's defense. When I talked to him, he said that it was designed to aid in the the compression of the car because at that time there was a huge debate over how rigid the cars were. And a lot of people said that that contributed to the tragedies that had happened in the year 2000 and early in 2001. And so in his defense, that was what he said. He said, we did it to help in the compression of the car in the event of an accident. I don't understand how that helps. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't uh, compression like uh, a push-inward type of thing? Yeah. So doesn't that close it in on the driver a little bit? Well, no. I think his case was that it was a line of defense against the rigidity of Mm. the car because at that time there was a lot of debate 
over the rigidity of the car transferring the shock. And I'm certainly no engineer. So this is a Rick Houston explanation. (laughs) (laughs) But the rigidity of the car transferred the shock of the impact directly to the driver. Ah. So if a car was able to crush a little bit easier, it lessened the impact by the time it got to the driver. That was my understanding. Okay, but uh, rigidity or not, NASCAR didn't think very much of it at all. And as I recall, maybe you can help me out here. I don't think that team ever raced again, all right, or wrong. Steve, the answer to that question, yes and no. They basically got handed the death penalty Hmm. for a Bush Series team. They were fined (laughs) $30,000, and driver Tim Sauter was dropped to the bottom of the running order. Sauter lost 60 driver points in the being Uh, dropped that far. And the team basically shut down. They did not race again. I think that was the 15th or 16th race of the year. They did not race again until the end of the year. I think they made a couple of starts, maybe at Rockingham and Homestead or whatever the last couple of races of the year were at that time. But after that, that team shut down. So, in effect, that really was the death penalty. Paid a huge price for that big mistake, didn't they? They did. And I think it also says a lot about the safety debate that that was going on at that time. Exactly. And I think NASCAR was very stern to this team, not only because of the infraction they committed, but also the attitude of the sport at the time. NASCAR obviously had been uh, struck with tragedies uh, and it was in the midst of trying to recover from. And the only way they could recover from it was to make racing safer. And this was a step in that direction to make sure a team never did this type of thing again. Hey, Rick, I'd like to bring up uh, the tragic loss of Bob Moore recently. He died uh, due to cancer. Bob had a very long and distinguished career in motorsports. He wrote motorsports for the Charlotte Observer before Tom Higgins. Before Tom Higgins. Wow. How long he'd been there. And after that, he got uh, he was a public relations director for the Winston Cup Series. And then later went on to uh, be a consultant in the sport as well as a freelance writer and a blogger. Worked with him several, several times. I know there are a lot of people in racing who knew Bob Moore and respected him as well as liked him. Bob did not have a single enemy that I know of. And there are only a few people in motorsports that ever have achieved that type of status. Bob was one of them. And I think the sport has suffered a real loss. And I know Bob will never be forgotten. Well, I know he will never be forgotten. But the thing that I will always remember about Bob was when I broke into the sport, he was in charge of the press box pool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he was for many years. He did two important things in the press box for sure. <laughs> Number one was to, was to uh, create the pool for that race. And number two, Bob always timed the pitch stops. So when a car came in and had to service and car went back out, you'd hear Bob's voice ringing out, 14.5, And also, Bob and his wife, Linda, always took a cruise in the off-season. Now, where did he get the money to do that, I wonder? From the press box pool. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly where he got the money. Yeah, That's what we all said, but of course, we didn't mean that. (laughs) Stephen, all the years that I took part in that press box pool, I think I placed in the money one time at Martinsville. I drew... Rusty Wallace. 
Now, at that time, Rusty Wallace was gold. Rusty Wallace was literally money yep. at Martinsville. And he finished his second or third, and I get 20, 30 bucks. Come on, man. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how many times I placed in money because I don't remember it, to be honest with you. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a $2 pool, $5 pool, $10 pool, and a $25 pool. I never had the money for those big money pots. Come on now. I only did it once or twice. and uh, Oh, come on. Uh, well, I was not the major player in those larger pools. But I could tell you who was. Name names. Let's just say Pappy. And we're going <laughs> to let it go at that. Well, Steve, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed sitting down with you this week to talk about Ned, to talk about the infractions at Richmond and Kentucky, and also to remember Bob, because I think sometimes when people pass on, there's a tendency to be real somber, and for good reason. Yeah. But when I go, I, don't, I want to be remembered as I was in life. I want people to sit around telling stories about me, and, and certainly there are numerous stories to tell about me. So, Steve, thank you for being here this week. Well, thank you, Rick. I enjoyed every every single minute of it. And again, I will stress that uh, losing Bob Moore and Tom Higgins and Bob Myers, three giants in motorsports media, is a tough thing for us to accept. But I think the best thing for all of us is to remember them by telling stories about them because that what, is what they would have wanted. Thank you, man. Now, listeners, as always, I'll remind you about iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review. And once we get to 50, and Steve, every week we're getting closer. Still getting awesome reviews. Once we get to 50, I'll give away a copy of every single NASCAR book that I've ever written. Also on Patreon, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. If you've been thinking about maybe supporting the production of the podcast and would like one of my books, either NASCAR's greatest race or Dell versus Daytona, do that before the end of the month, because next month I'm going to try something a little new, Steve. Oh, yeah. I'm going to try something new. So Wait for that. yeah, we'll see what happens. Or if you don't want to commit to a monthly deal over on PayPal, the address is paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. And always any support I would truly appreciate. Steve, I'll see you next week. Okay, Rick, I look forward to it. Yeah.